on a brisk winter's day, Ralph Middleton Monroe pushes off from the mainland in his sturdy little skiff and sets off expertly across the water, rocking gently to and fro as he cuts through the lightly chopping waves. Breathing deeply of the fresh sea air, he reflects upon the theater of nature that lays before him. Sunlight beams down through a vaulted ceiling of fluffy clouds that march across the vast sky into infinity. The golden rays shift and shimmer delicately, turning Biscayne Bay into a magnificent cathedral to which the grandest monasteries of the old world could not hope to compare. What good fortune he has had to have friends in a place like this. What a happy escape from the noise and crowds of New York City, the smoke and grime, the labor riots and violence, the bitter cold. To be able to spend the winters in adventure, plying the warm waters in this little piece of heaven on earth. The thought of his eventual return north brings him a brief pang of discomfort. Perhaps, he thinks, I should just leave it all behind. Saluting the old lighthouse as he rounds Cape Florida, he enters the more turbulent waters of the open sea. Pulling his hat down tightly against the wind, he braces himself against the bulwarks and hauls on the lines, handling his vessel masterfully as he steers it in the direction of the rocky reef. The bump of the boat over the waves fills him with excitement as schools of flying fish skim through the air, cutting across his bow. Soon, his destination comes into view, an enormous pyramid of crisscrossing iron jutting straight up out of the sea. It is the new lighthouse, firmly affixed to the Fowey rocks by iron screw pilings, where it marks the barrier of the Florida reef itself. A testament to American engineering, its completion in 1878 has finally made the straits safe for passing ships, much to the dismay of the local wreckers. He brings the skiff about as the lighthouse looms overhead. Pulling up to the mooring, he ties up and hauls himself on deck. The wind strengthens as he ascends the ladder to the upper level, where the keeper's house hovers above the undulating image of corals and flitting fish. He peers across the open ocean and takes it all in for another moment before stepping inside. Keeper Frau is not in today but he's told Monroe of some of the curious reading material that had been brought to the light to help while away the lonely hours in the middle of the sea. Ancient government reports and the like, Frau had found much of this material to be thoroughly mundane and had set it aside for destruction. But Monroe, inquisitive and astute, had desired to come examine these documents first. As he peruses the contents of the dwelling, he spies the pile of discarded papers. Many years later, he would write, In turning over, I picked up an eight-year-old post office report in which my eye chanced on the following entry. Coconut Grove Post Office, four miles south of Miami. Discontinued. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 17, Frontier Towns.
The unwitting founder of Coconut Grove, or at least of its name, was a former Union surgeon by the name of Horace Porter, who spent only a few fraught and combative years on Biscayne Bay before he'd had enough, but who unknowingly left behind a lasting legacy. In 1872, Dr. Porter, his wife and children in tow, had rented out the waterfront homestead of the elderly widow Anne Beasley, whose late husband Ned had been granted the property after being wounded in the Civil War. Not wishing to schlep up to Fort Dallas to get his mail, Dr. Porter had applied for, and received, a post office at his home, and named it Coconut Grove, originally spelling Coco with an A in it. The inspiration for this name remains a matter of some debate, for in later years there were only two coconut trees to be found on the property, barely enough to be called a grove. In one version of events, Porter had in fact planted an entire grove of coconuts, but a hurricane had quickly wiped out all but two of them. At any rate, many photos of these two stately palm trees were taken in later years. Dr. Porter had been desirous of the widow Beasley's land, and through his somewhat devious attempts to acquire it, soon found himself embroiled in a legal spat with her and her grandchildren. This, perhaps combined with the realities of life on the frontier, soon drove him to seek a new life elsewhere, and in 1874, he abandoned the Beasley homestead along with his short-lived post office. The past is littered with charming little events that have been lost to history forever, and the Coconut Grove post office seemed destined to become one of them. But times, they were a-changing. The arrival of Charles and Isabella Peacock from London the year after Dr. Porter left and the fateful visit of a young Ralph Monroe a short time later were the seeds of Biscayne Bay's most significant developments yet. Ralph Monroe came from an affluent Staten Island, New York family. His grandfather had pioneered the mass production of graphite pencils, of all things, and his family's modest wealth had allowed Ralph to develop a passion for yacht building and yacht racing. Now, before you get the wrong idea, let's be clear that a yacht, strictly speaking, is any boat built for leisure or sport. So, these were sport boats. Nothing like the hulking behemoths that the world's super-rich bring to our doorstep today. And through his young life on the water, Monroe had heard many tales of the tropical seas of the Florida Straits, but it was a chance encounter with William Brickle, while Brickle was in New York on business, that fixed Biscayne Bay in Monroe's imagination. His first visit, purely one of adventure, took place in 1877 a thrilling journey that took him through the crystal waters of the Bahamas and a stop at the bustling island town of Key West, he finally entered the bay through Caesars Creek, passing Soldier Key, where the U.S. engineers were staging construction of the Fowey Rocks Light. He found the clear waters of the Miami River and the idyllic landscape of Fort Dallas and the Brickell property fully as enchanting as Brickell had described it. And though he stayed for only a few weeks... It was on this visit that he witnessed the tense commission meeting that brought the reign of William Gleason to an end. And it was also on this visit that he first made the acquaintance of the Peacocks. Biscayne Bay was now firmly stuck in Monroe's mind. 
1880, he returned with his wife Eva, her sister Adeline, and their brother Tom when the sisters came down with tuberculosis. The doctors in New York had urged them to flee the coming frigid winter, and Monroe had known just where to go. At this time, Charles and Isabella Peacock were renting a room in the Fort Dallas Longhouse, and on the grounds nearby, the Monroes were invited to pitch their tents. From here, they could gaze across the river towards the Brickell's trading post, where Brickell had recently taken over as postmaster. Isabella did her best to nurse the sisters back to health, and Adeline, her condition improving, penned the following letter to a friend describing their new circumstances. Quote, I am now sitting under a coconut tree in a hammock. I left my sister lying on my cot. She is very delicate, so weak, has a chill almost every day, and she is so thin I fear she will never be well again. We are on the banks of the Miami River, and just across the river is the post office, a half mile from our encampment. We must row over for our mail. Our mail is brought each week by schooner from Key West. It seems so strange to receive the mail only once a week. How much do we enjoy it? The mail here has increased, they tell us, since we came. When I read of the cold weather north, I feel thankful I am here. Eva and I drink coconut milk every day. It is said to be very good for invalids. The jelly is also very nice. Ralph and Tommy have just come in from fishing, had good luck, caught a number of different kinds of fish, red snapper, grouper, running jacks, and schoolmaster, expected to have caught some of our favorite kingfish, but it was too rough outside. I have seen some of the Seminole Indians, of which I will tell when I write again. I am to have a cart ride on Saturday to the Pine Woods. They are a mile from us. I amuse myself with walking out some. I have made a flower bed. I am now gathering daisy seeds to take north. I will enclose a diagram of our place. Perhaps you can get some idea from it how we live. Do not laugh at us. Signed, Addie. Said diagram can be found on this episode's page at storyofmiami.com. During the year and a half of this visit, while the sisters battled sickness, Ralph kept himself busy on the sea. Here, it dawned on him, was an unparalleled wonderland for sailing and fishing enthusiasts such as himself, diverse enough to offer endless entertainment to the boat builder, the racer, the amateur fisherman, and the master of the deep sea alike. And yet, in the entire country, there was not a single hotel that could suit such adventurous visitors. As his friendship with the good-natured peacocks grew stronger, the idea of capitalizing on such an opportunity began to bloom. Though Monroe intended to return to New York when Eva and Addie got better, he encouraged the peacocks to search for waterfront property to buy, where they could build their home and open the bay's first lodging. If they did that, he assured them, he would be able to bring all manner of well-to-do northerners down to fill their rooms and dining hall. Sadly, despite the bracing air, both Eva and Adeline soon succumbed to their sickness. Monroe buried his wife on the banks of the river and somberly returned home to his life in New York. But in the meantime... Charles and Isabella Peacock took action on the whole hotel idea. Searching for the right property upon which to build their dreams, they settled finally on the old Beasley property, 
which they purchased in 1882 and construction got underway. Aimless in New York and yearning to visit the resting place of his wife, Monroe returned that winter to help out, and it was about this time that he made his fateful voyage to the Fowey Rocks Light and discovered the existence of Dr. Porter's old post office on the very same property as the new hotel. It was a magnificent stroke of luck, since it was much easier to reopen an existing post office than to apply for a new one. And so, when the hotel was completed and opened for business in 1883, it became the new Coconut Grove, and a phenomenon was born. The original Peacock property is a roughly triangular area, extending from the southern border of today's Peacock Park north to Grand Avenue and Mary Street. To this day, it comprises the heart of Coconut Grove. The hotel, which doubled as the Peacock's home, was originally named the Bayview House, but as business took off, it was soon rebranded simply the Peacock Inn. Here, the warmth and hospitality of Charles and Isabella Peacock, not to mention their famous turtle soup, quickly turned the place into the center of Biscayne Bay's social life. And, as Parks writes in Miami the Magic City, quote, the long wooden deck that jutted out into the bay became the settlement's front door, end quote. The 1880s were a turning point for Miami, when Florida's rebirth after decades of warfare finally reached the shores of the bay. In the wake of the Civil War, as America had plunged headlong into a metamorphosis of coal and steel, the warm air and thin population of Florida had, paradoxically, turned into an attraction. Wealthy northerners, many of whom, like Monroe, first visited Florida due to sickness, found themselves enamored with what they found. Historian Susanna Worth writes that they saw, quote, rustic retreats and encounters with nature as antidotes to what were perceived as the unhealthy, stultifying, and corrupting acts of modernization, end quote. In March 1883, the Cincinnati Commercial Gazette wrote, quote, it is surprising when inquiring for the businessmen of New York to ascertain that so many of them have sought the softer clime of Florida, end quote. That same year, Joseph Medill, editor of the Chicago Tribune, wrote that Florida was overrun with northerners and that the friendly native population appeared to be, quote, thoroughly reconstructed. Also that year, President Chester A. Arthur, himself falling ill, took a restorative boat and train ride through the Florida backcountry, reaching as far as the nascent citrus town of Orlando. Hard-to-reach Biscayne Bay had not yet felt these effects by the time the Peacocks built therein. But now, true to his word, Ralph Monroe called upon his northern friends to come and visit his slice of paradise, and found them easy to convince. Many were fellow sailing enthusiasts of means, who sailed their yachts down the coast and directly up to the Peacock's dock. Others were simply aspiring adventurers. All were utterly charmed. As Parks writes, quote, The special atmosphere of the Bayview House and the warmth and good humor of Charles and Isabella Peacock kept people coming. End quote. Kirk Monroe, no relation to Ralph, 
was a prolific writer of books for young boys and editor for Harper's Young People magazine, who came with his wife, Mary Barr Monroe. Charles Stowe, son of the legendary abolitionist author Harriet Beecher Stowe, also came to stay. In the years that followed, the business grew so big that several more three-story buildings had to be constructed, and by 1891, the Peacocks had also opened a grocery business, Peacock and Son, along with an entertainment and meeting venue. From its very first day, Miami's tourism industry has been driven, as it is now, by wealthy vacationers from colder atmospheres. And while many went home after enjoying the swimming, sailing, hunting, and fishing of the Peacock Inn, some found their calling here. In the surrounding area, something very much like a village was swirling into existence for the first time in Miami's history. Ralph Monroe, who for several years returned to New York in the summers, finally did leave it all behind purchasing his own 40 acres of Bayfront property just south of the Peacock Inn, where he built his stately home. He established the Biscayne Bay Yacht Club, Miami's oldest institution, out of his boathouse, and also built the community's first house of worship, the Union Congregational Church, where Charles Stowe preached to blacks and whites alike. Kirk and Mary Barr Monroe also settled nearby becoming the settlement's leading environmental conservationists. And J.W. Ewan, still managing Fort Dallas on behalf of the Biscayne Bay Company, purchased property and moved down as well. For homesteaders in the surrounding country, the Peacock Inn became the center of life, serving as a place for meetings, church services, weddings, and festivals. Flora McFarlane, South Florida's first solo woman homesteader, and the namesake of McFarland Road, opened Miami's first schoolhouse in 1887. And in 1891, she and Mary Barr Monroe, along with other women in the community, organized the Housekeepers Club, today known as the Woman's Club of Coconut Grove. At its first meetings, held out of the new schoolhouse, Parks writes that, quote, sturdy pioneer women who grew up on Biscayne Bay with little formal education met with former Northerners who grew up in fancy Eastern drawing rooms, end quote. The Housekeepers Club became the leading sponsor of social events, raising money for community improvements and organizations. And in 1894, Lake Worth paper The Tropical Sun named Coconut Grove the largest and most influential community on the mainland. In 1895, Mary Barr Monroe established the Pine Needles Club for Young Girls, which led the way in establishing the Coconut Grove Library later that same year. And in 1896, New York attorney Paul C. Ransom created the Pine Knot Camp for Boys, which would later give rise to Ransom Everglades School. A lot has changed since those exciting days, but history still hides in plain sight along the streets of Coconut Grove. At the steps of the Coconut Grove Library, for example, one can find the final resting place of Eva Monroe, where Ralph had her body reinterred as he began his new life in the tropics. Enclosed in a little fence beside the sidewalk, it is the oldest marked grave in Miami. Nearby, 
Concealed behind a thicket of ancient hardwood hammock on Main Highway stands Monroe's home, which he designed himself using his knowledge as a boat builder. Incorporating several architectural innovations, he had it built atop wooden pilings to allow cool air to circulate underneath, and combined large windows and a pyramidal-hipped roof vented at its peak to allow the breeze to flow through the house and out the top. The broad bungalow, built largely out of salvaged shipwrecked lumber, reminded everyone of an enormous filter-feeding crustacean latched onto the earth, and so it was christened the Barnacle. Monroe lived here for many decades with his second wife, Jessie Worth, as the city grew up around them, and it was not until 1973 that their descendants moved away, rejecting lucrative offers by developers and instead conveying the property to the state. The Barnacle Historic State Park now preserves this beautiful waterfront building, Miami's oldest home still in its original location for all to enjoy. Many photos of the period were taken by Ralph Monroe, who added photography to his wide repertoire of hobbies. His primary passion, though, was yachting, he built or purchased dozens of boats during his life, giving them such whimsical names as Egret, Cyclone, and Alapata, the seminal word for alligator. Through his leadership of the Biscayne Bay Yacht Club, he ensured that Miami became recognized as a national standout for sport fishing and sailing, earning him the nickname the Commodore. He is the namesake of such places as Commodore Plaza in the Grove, and his memoir, the Commodore's story is a timeless account of life on the bay. Throughout the 1880s, while the vision of Monroe and the Peacocks was slowly coming together, the rest of Biscayne Bay country was experiencing an almost imperceptible transformation as the gradual growth of agricultural homesteads added to the diversity of the local economy. Around 1880, a Massachusetts man named William Cutler purchased several hundred acres down in the southern reaches of the area known as the Hunting Grounds, and there he spurred the development of a small community growing tomatoes and tropical fruit. Cutler's friend, William Fuzzard, built a beautiful home in the backwoods complete with stained glass windows. The community around Fuzzard's home soon grew large enough for a post office of its own, which Fuzzard named in honor of his old friend Cutler. And in 1883, Fuzzard hacked out a big trail to Coconut Grove. This route is known today as Old Cutler Road. Not far away, on Elliott Key, the Sweeting family claimed a homestead to plant pineapples. Pineapples, it had been discovered, thrived on the rocky coral islands, and they could be shipped long distances to boot. And so the Sweetings set about getting in on the booming business. Within a few years, they were joined by the Thompsons and the Filers, and before long, a whole school district just for Elliott Key was needed to educate the growing families in the little schoolhouse that was built there. Across the backcountry homesteads, little farming enterprises were popping up everywhere, and with the economic productivity and export traffic on the bay growing year by year, it slowly became apparent that some more centralized wharves and warehouses might be beneficial. Thus, as the resort community of the Grove was gaining traction, 
an altogether different type of neighborhood took shape 10 miles up the coast, just below the Little River, where Bahamian John Saunders grew orange, mango, coconut, and lemon trees. Here was some of the deepest water in the bay, and in 1889, Eugene Harrington purchased from Saunders a long strip of land that ran back from this bayfront. Harrington surveyed and subdivided the land into small lots with a street running down the middle, and began selling them off piecemeal. The bayfront acre, which he had purchased for $100, sold to a Key West resident for four times the price, and the 81 parcels on the remaining acreage, for which he had paid $300 in all, sold for $25 to $65 apiece, netting Harrington a handsome profit indeed. Soon, a handful of businesses, homes, and warehouses were going up. Immediately to the north, Ned Pent, native son of old-timer Temple Pent, also got in on the act, selling several acres of his homestead to various buyers. And thus, during the 1890s, a bustling little pioneer hamlet emerged. Thanks, perhaps, to John Saunders' nearby grove of lemon trees, the place soon acquired the name Lemon City. The small street platted by Harrington, around which the town was built, was named Lemon Avenue. Today, this street is the stretch of Northeast 61st Street between Northeast 2nd Ave and the water, and a glance at the map still reveals the slightly crooked result of Harrington's inexact survey. Unlike the affluent retreat town of Coconut Grove, Lemon City was driven by frontier industry. Its advantage was its accessibility, as the most convenient place for loading the growing volumes of kunti, citrus, pineapples, and pine lumber, and for importing the various goods that the expanding population demanded. It was the central warehousing district of the bay, and around its wharves, specialized industries found a natural home. The people who moved into the little town were farmers, smiths, millers, carpenters, shippers, and the like, working-class families who made a living off the sweat of their brow and the work of their hands. The Lemon City Post Office was established in 1889. In 1890, the first school was set up, where William and Mary Brickle's daughter, Alice, was the first schoolteacher. Kentuckian Ada Merritt soon came to take over schooling, opening the village's first Sunday school and becoming a beloved member of the community. In 1892, Lemon Avenue was paved, quite likely the first paved street in all of Dade County. An Episcopalian church was also built that year, followed by a Methodist church a year later. In 1894, the Lemon City Library was organized at the home of Mrs. Cornelia Key. Dan Knight opened up a general store along with a sawmill which produced fine Dade County pine lumber and allowed for much more rapid and sturdy construction. By 1895, Lemon Avenue was accompanied by two more short business streets, Sawdust Street and Biscayne Avenue, which, in addition to Knight's sawmill and store, sported several large houses, two hotels, two or three saloons, a restaurant, a blacksmith shop, a real estate office, a barber shop, and several wharves and warehouses. Now, all of this activity the construction and operation of the Peacock Inn, the building of Lemon City, the chopping of trails out of the jungle, and the cultivation of exotic fruits 
could not have been achieved without both intimate knowledge of the natural landscape and a great deal of physical labor. The more affluent white settlers whose capital drove these developments arrived with very little in the way of know-how when it came to Biscayne Bay's alkaline soils, tough pine lumber, and jagged limestone bedrock. They were even less ready for the back-breaking hard work that was required. Instead, they went to Key West to hire laborers. It is here that modern Miami's black history and its immigrant history both find their roots, in the Bahamian migrant workers who built the Grove and Lemon City and who settled Miami's oldest black communities. The similarity of the soil and earth to those of the Bahamas had given them, over generations, invaluable knowledge of how to turn the land to productive uses, more so even than the white Bahamians who had come before. They knew which fruits to plant and how to plant them in the shallow soil. They knew how to make lime mortar from the oolite rocks with which to build stone walls. And they knew how to tackle the infuriating task of clearing land to build or farm. An interminable process known as grubbing, which many white newcomers found nigh on impossible. The tough roots of Miami's natural vegetation grew in, out, and through the craggy and porous bedrock and defied any attempt to remove a tree or shrub all at once requiring instead to be attacked one single root at a time. Through their tireless labor, the Bahamian immigrants, who were paid by the square foot, made way for streets and homes and farms and businesses. The Bahamian story is a classic immigrant story, and a classic Miami story, for they came in search of a better life. Indeed, the conditions in the Bahamas were worse, where the economy was collapsing and families were on the verge of starvation. And so these laborers came to work, many as seasonal migrants who returned to the Bahamas with money to support their families. But others settled on the outskirts of Coconut Grove and Lemon City, a community known as Kibo formed to the west of the Peacock Inn. And with the help of Reverend E.W.F. Stirrup, Miami's first black developer, many were soon able to buy a home for themselves. This community, today known as West Grove, is Miami's oldest black neighborhood and remains a cradle of Bahamian culture. Around Lemon City, Bowlestown, Nazarene, and Knightsville were all well-established black communities by the turn of the century. Engulfed by modern streets today, the memory of these places and the open breezeways of the homes that stood there lives on in the work of historians like Thelma Peters, Marvin Dunn, and Enid Pinckney, who wrote, quote, They were the people that helped beautify this community with a machete and the strength of their backs when this area was nothing but palmetto bush. We are standing on their shoulders. Powered by the economic engines of Coconut Grove and Lemon City, Dade County was finally seeing the steady organic growth that had eluded it for centuries. But at the mouth of the Miami River, tranquil solitude still reigned. As Parks writes, quote, The future site of the city of Miami was still little more than a wilderness. The two rock buildings on the North Bank, the Brickles Home and Trading Post on the South Bank, and a few other scattered pioneer houses were the only structures. 
end quote. While busy communities were springing up to the north and south, a peaceful calm belied that this was about to become ground zero for a tumultuous revolution of fantastic proportions. Ah! 